Hey folks, before we get started, I wanted to tell you about the Consumer VC Summit. The Consumer VC Summit is a three-day virtual event that is focused on e-commerce, retail, and innovation. This is all happening February 23rd through 25th, 2021. Mark Nathan and I have really poured our souls into it. During the day is a mix of talks and panel discussions with some incredible founders and investors that focus on these sectors. In the evenings, we're going to be throwing networking events, and if you're a founder, you'll also have access to mentoring sessions, which means you'll meet three investors or industry professionals for feedback about your business. All of our talks and panels will also be available for replay with a ticket. Please check out summit.theconsumervc.com and enter ConsumerVC for a 20% discount. This is also located in the show notes. We look forward to seeing you there. Now on to the episode. Hello, and welcome to The Consumer VC. I am your host, Mike Gelb, and on this show, we talk about the role of venture capital and innovation in both consumer technology and consumer products. If you enjoy this show, please tell a friend or colleague about it and help spread the word. If you want to also search for other episodes or learn about some of the other resources that are available to you, head over to theconsumervc.com. My guest today is Tyler Morgan, Vice President at BFG Partners. BFG Partners invests in entrepreneurs that build exceptional businesses in the better-for-you food, beverage, and consumer product space. Some of their investments include Olipop, Quinn Snacks, and Bare Naked. I really enjoyed my time with Tyler where we discussed his due diligence process, effects of COVID within CPG, and the evolution of BFG. Without further ado, here's Tyler. Tyler, thank you so much for joining me today. How are you? I'm well, Mike. Uh, I very much appreciate uh, the offer to come and chat with you. No, thanks so much, man. It was great, you know, meeting you. Well, I think back in the last October, and it's great to finally do this. So uh, this is going to be a lot of fun. For sure, I've been, uh, you know, a listener and, and watching this thing grow. So it's cool to be a part of it. Thanks, man. Thanks. Well, it's such a pleasure to have you on. So let's start from the very beginning, man. What was your initial attraction? to consumer products? It's a good question. And I, I mean, I think it goes hand in hand with my interest in, in investing. I've always been interested in food. And, you know, I think I got to VC a little bit of a different pathway than what I would say kind of most folks that, that end up in, in venture. And, and that would be through food. So, you know, I didn't really start in finance. I don't have a finance background, but I've always been interested in food. So I went to school in LA, a little liberal arts school, Occidental. And uh, my whole life has been interested in, in food and food systems. Systems. So I was an urban and environmental policy major at Oxy and uh, with, a, with a real focus on kind of food systems. So I wrote, wrote my thesis on getting better food into, into hospitals and, and hospital groups. And so that is kind of where my background was. And through that process, kind of discovered wellness and kind of my own wellness journey within and, and the, the role that food plays in that. And, you know, as I became a, a real consumer in college and, and thereafter, where, you know, my, my mom wasn't buying all my food for me. It you know became clear to me how much a part of culture food is, and it's really always just interested me in that way, in the sense that everybody has to do it. You know, not everybody has to buy handbags or dresses, but uh, everybody has to eat, and really fascinates me kind of why people eat what they do. 
No, totally. What I find pretty interesting too is your, I guess, part of your initial curiosity with that thinking about your senior thesis was about wellness and food in hospitals, where on this show, as you know, we cover a lot about the wellness trend that's happened with consumers. We don't really talk about as much as the wellness trends that's happened in hospitals or food in hospitals rather, which is also pretty interesting. So that's kind of cool how that was one of your interests early on. So why did you decide, okay, I'm interested in food. This is part of what I studied in college. College, what made you became fascinated on the investing side of things rather than founding a food company? <laughs> it's a good question. You know, I've always enjoyed the process involved in creating a business. And, you know, I think that there's a level of risk associated with that. And I've always been fascinated in a lot of different things, as opposed to felt a calling in my life that I needed to start this or do that and felt really passionate about one area of focus. And, you know, because of that, you know, I thought to myself, well, should I start something? What should I do after school? You know, how do I want to play on, on my interests? And, you know, it's part of life, right? I would say that if I hadn't connected with the folks that I that I did at, at BFG and gotten to be a part of it, I think in another life, you know, I would have maybe started something. But it's part of it's creating your own luck in a sense, right? Like I knew that I wanted to work in a space. I knew I wanted to interact with consumer products in a broader fashion. And when I was afforded the opportunity to, to join BFG when Tom was first starting it, you know, I thought what a better way to to be able to interact with founders and, and products than, you know, try and, and build a portfolio where, you know, I get to be a part of something bigger than myself and, and also something that's not necessarily hurting the planet or, or the people in it. Totally. That makes a lot of sense in terms of why you thought about going into investing rather than building your own business. Tell me a little bit about the origins of BFG. It seems like you've also done a bit of a rebrand as well over this past year, I believe. But talk to me a little bit about like the origins of BFG and your focus areas. Sure. Yeah, of course. So we were founded at the end of 2014. So about six years old at this point. So Tom Spear, our founder and managing partner was COO at Bare Naked Granola until they sold that business to Kellogg's. And then Tom and a gentleman, Phil Anson, and co-founded the business Evol Frozen Foods, which they grew really quickly and sold to Boulder Brands here in, in town in Boulder in 2013. Tom had the bat, the opportunity to, to form BFG on the back of that sale. So, you know, the origin of the business really came out of Tom's experience in food and beverage over the past, call it, decade. And as such, you know, in 2014, we were really one of the only funds investing in this segment of the market. And when I say this segment, I would say, you know, brands doing kind of one to 10 million sales, we were operating out of our first fund, which was about a $55 million fund. And there wasn't a lot of money within consumer products, especially food and beverage operating at that scale. There were the kind of VMGs of the world that existed at that point, but they were kind of operating on a, on a larger scale, probably series B, C, you know, businesses with, with kind of larger revenue numbers. And we were really filling a, a hole in that market. And, you know, with the growth of this sector, there has been a lot more money coming into the space. And so, you know, once was once a, a very unique value proposition, you know, there's just a lot more money, which I think is great for the ecosystem and great for founders but also affords us an opportunity to kind of re-examine our focus and expand the scope of the fund. And as such, with, with Fund 2, you know, we we had the ability to leverage all of our operating experiences within food and beverage and our backgrounds and really take what we've learned as operators and investors in this space and, and expand that into other 
you know, what I would call consumable. So that includes pet, household, personal care, supplements, beauty, and, you know, high turning consumer categories like that. Got it. That makes a lot of sense. I'd say just overall, in terms of we, we talk about those consumable categories, what are maybe some overarching themes or kind of specific trends within those sectors that you're focused on? Yeah, I think on, on a personal level, especially given my background, you know, as I just spoke about and where I was prior to BFG, which was actually at a, a biotech company called Micro microbiome therapeutics, developing, you know, what I would call drugs and, and supplements based on microbiome health for essentially type 2 diabetics. And really just all grass ingredients, which is generally regarded as safe. It's the classification of the FDA. And it's just a powder you mix with water and it you know, increases insulin sensitivity and help you feel fuller and, and kind of help the good bacteria while, while killing the bad. And, you know, I, I've thought a lot about it's kind of health and food as wellness and the proactive nature of healthcare versus the reactive nature of healthcare. And I think we're in a place in society where healthcare is very reactive. It's much harder to quantify staying healthy as it is to getting a person healthier. And I think that's why you see insurance not covering food and, and things like that. So an area I'm super interested in is really this kind of concept as food as medicine. I think it's going to be a long road as we get there. But I, I do envision a future where, you know, people are being prescribed diets and you know, functional ingredients in their food and insurers are covering the costs of some of this because at the end of the day, it's a lot less expensive for the healthcare system as a whole to keep a person healthy as it is to make them healthy again, even though it's much harder to quantify that number, if that makes sense. No, it does. I mean, just expanding on that, are you seeing that consumers are maybe thinking about when it comes to being healthy and wellness and food and being a lot more careful maybe about their intake or what their actual intake is, that consumers are behaving maybe a lot more long-term in terms of, okay, here's some of the side effects long-term, for example, I don't know if I have a soda a day or a couple sodas a day, right? But are you seeing that consumers are also, I understand the incentive on the insurance side of things and in the health space. I was just wondering if you've also been seeing that incentive as well on the consumer side of things to be more healthy and the long-term effects from it. Yeah, it's a great question. And, and I think that you know, it kind of the adage, like person is smart, people are, are dumb. Like I think people know the choices that they're making. And I think the consumer is more informed than ever about what they put in their body affects their, their overall health. But at the end of the day, like you want a cookie, you're going to eat it. Like I think that desire for consumption and indulgence is still a more powerful kind of emotion than the long-term, you know, health that, that you may be feeling. And I think you see that within environmental and conservation too. Like I think people may say they're eating things like Beyond Burgers for the environment, but really it wasn't until those things tasted good that people start doing that. So until it fits into the lifestyle that people already have, people aren't going to make those lifestyle changes. And, you know, I think one real life example of that is, is Olipop. It's one of our brands. You know, they're they're making taste profiles of a, of a traditional soda, but with, you know, two to five grams of sugar as opposed to 30 to 40 grams of sugar per can with a bunch of kind of digestive fiber. And I don't think that product would work as well it is, as it's working if it didn't taste as good as it does, because people aren't just going to drink it because they know it's healthy. They have to drink it because they like drinking it. And until you kind of make that switch within both 
health and sustainability. I don't think either of those two can can become the forefront of consumer behavior without taste. That's really interesting. I'd imagine when you're evaluating companies in the food and beverage space or, you know, maybe other spaces as well, I'm thinking the beauty and personal care, how a product maybe smells, if that's a fair simile or relationship to it. Yeah, I think it, it just it boils down to being a product that the consumer feels like they need to have in their lives and, and it can be incorporated into their daily routine without any friction. And I think that's probably the, the most important piece, whether it's something that they can consume every day, like an, like a, like an Olipop or a cauliflower pizza, or whether it's on the personal care side. You know, we have a, an investment into a really cool brand called Zitsticka, which makes uh, acne care products. And, you know, the, the products aren't the cheapest products in the segment, but they really, they really work. And between efficacy and brand, I think there's a little bit of magic that can be created no matter what category you're playing in, whether it's food or beauty or pet, you know, there has to be a level of efficacy and love for the product before there can be any underlying assumptions around whether that's making the world a better place, if that makes sense. Totally, totally it does. I mean, I know you're focused on the US, but I think I've read a couple reports about how European products, and of course, this is very general, but Europeans might be a little bit more conscientious of the environment in that the product doesn't need to actually taste as good. Are you just seeing like different maybe changes in cultures about their approach to taste or not so much? I think that's true to an extent. And I think Americans have this, you know, air of kind of exceptionalism about them where everything has to be bigger and better. And I think just to some extent that's true. But I think universally, you know, the world is moving towards a more kind of socially and environmentally conscious consumer, wherein, you know, you will buy a product because you identify with the values that it's holding. But you might buy it once, but if it doesn't work, you're not going to buy it again. And I think that's the point I'm trying to make is that consumers can have an affiliation with a brand and the mission behind it. But if the product doesn't do what it's intended to do, you're really not building a fan for life. Totally makes sense. I mean, it's not just, you know, branding or marketing, like the product has to be amazing, right? In order to stand out. And that starts first and foremost with taste. And, you know, I wanted to know, because it seems like in this era, and it's been like this for the past few years, but there's so many brands out there since it's so easy to start a brand now, any other point in time. How do you think about, since you're evaluating and meeting with these founders that are still pretty early stage, I think, as you said, under 10 million in sales, what's your evaluation process to judge if these brands might be able to cut through the noise? Yeah, it's a great question. Obviously, one that I, I ask myself often when something does or does not work and kind of why, why is that? You know, what's the secret sauce? And, you know, BFG will look at companies kind of anywhere between like, you know, 1 million to 30 million in, tra in trailing sales. So we're really looking at a wide swatch of, of businesses. You know, there's a little bit of luck in everything, in every product, right? I think there's has to be some level of the right place, right time. But I think there's a couple things that, you know, we keep coming back to as investors when we're looking at something that has a exceptionally, you know, big outcome or just feel like it's really resonant culturally within society, as opposed to can be maybe a similar product with a similar value proposition without the branding and mission that, you know, one brand might have. I'd say first is, is people by far the most important factor that we consider when we're making a new investment is who the founder is, who the founding team are, who they manage to surround themselves with. I think the right founder can take a decent idea and make it a huge business. And I think the wrong founder 
can take what is, you know, a, a great idea and, and not succeed for any number of reasons. So, you know, I think founding team is, is definitely high on the list. And then I think brands that come at it with a sense of authenticity, and I know that's a bit of a trope at this point, but I do believe that consumers align themselves with brands that they think are being, you know, true to what they say in their marketing materials and, and everything else. And it doesn't have to necessarily be a mission statement about saving the world or saving the planet. It can be something that's just, you know, creative content that speaks to a consumer in a, in a new and fresh way that doesn't feel like they're being patronized to, you know, th that has a, a, a great way of connecting directly with, with that consumer and, and at once kind of feel like it can exist within the broader social context. And I think, you know, there are brands doing great jobs of like of things like that. I would point to Omson, you know, bringing authentically kind of, you know, ethnic cuisine to the United States without making it feel like they are appropriating something, you know, obviously because the founders are of Asian descent, but also making products not for the American palate, right? You know, I think Vanessa would always say that she's making products that, that Asian folks would eat and, you know, American folks want to eat what's authentic. And so that's why they're gravitating toward the brand. And I think the mission statement and, and just the content that the brand is creating is pretty special in the space. I love that. I really liked how you explained authenticity. And I really appreciate that example. It seems like, you know, not only being authentic in your messaging, but also as well, the product has to actually match as well, what's your messaging? And that's great. So walk me through your due diligence process, if you don't mind. Yeah, um, I'd say it's adapted uh, since COVID, but it hasn't necessarily completely changed. Again, like I mentioned, people are the number one factor that we're considering. So a lot of time on Zoom and, you know, whether that is better or worse than pre-COVID, I'm not necessarily sure. I think you can get a lot of FaceTime on Zoom and you don't really leave out you know, the important stuff. I, I think what's missing is the the small interactions that are kind of unguarded that you would uh, get if you were just at dinner with someone, like what happens when, you know, they go to the bathroom or, you know, random stuff that kind of is outside of the context of a traditional kind of set meeting. So so I think that's changed a bit. But beyond that, you know, we're, we're doing our work on what the profile of the brand is and can be. So not only kind of what their products are today, but really is this a brand that can be a, a platform for something larger than, you know, maybe the one or two products that they have today? And, and how big is that market? So what are they speaking to today? And, and what can they speak to in the future? And then, uh, you know, we, we dig in a lot on, on gross margins. I think, you know, it's never been easier to start a business, but you don't have much of a business if you have 5% gross margin, because you're going to continuously need to fund that with external capital and, and new consumers in order to grow it. So we do a lot of work on the gross margin side as well. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I've had other investors talk about how how important gross margin is in consumers. Reminds me when I talked with uh, Clayton Christopher about it at the summit, which was pretty fun because he kind of goes back and back and back over again to gross margin, gross margin, gross margin. But wanted to know in terms of the brands that you're looking at to investing, do they have to have an online presence in order for you to be interested or a significant amount of their sales through like the online DTC channel? Definitely not. And in fact, you know, I think as when we started or particularly when Tom, when Tom started, you know, our, our core focus was retail because again, you know, we're historically food investors and that's obviously kind of broadened a bit, but you know, I think that, look, I think direct to consumer is very important. This year has obviously shown that, but we'd like to say omni-channel is, is really the only compelling way to build a business. And I think, you know, you saw, 
saw a lot of the the results of a strictly direct consumer playbook kind of play out over the last five years with some of the high growth investments in Casper and, and other things in the space that ultimately had a bit of a lackluster outcome for everyone involved. So the, the short answer to your question is definitely not. You know, we're invested in, in many brands that started in retail and have since expanded into e-com, started with e-com, expanded into retail. But ultimately, you know, it would hard, be hard for us to get into a new product or brand that didn't have the ability to play in multiple categories and essentially kind of meet the consumer wherever they are. And it has a lot to do with kind of top of funnel, bottom of funnel conversion, right? I think, you know, you, you have your own direct-to-consumer website and that's really either, you know, people are coming to that because they got fed an ad or because they're specifically looking for your brand. And so that's really high purchase intent. But then you have things like Amazon where it's pretty high purchase intent because you wouldn't be on Amazon if you weren't looking to buy something. So if you're, you know, feeding Amazon ads, the, the conversion is, is pretty good there and you're, you're winning new customers, but it's not necessarily the same customer that you would be winning if it was, you know, an ad on Facebook or Google. And then you have retail where, you know, you're, you're getting random people picking up your product in the store. And so it's a very different consumer at every level of these kind of consumer interactions. And I think if you really want to build and scale a brand, you need to be able to win in all of those categories. I totally agree. I wanted to also on the retail front, I wanted to talk about, you know, has it been harder analyzing, you know, these young brands since many of them that are in retail rely on, you know, in-store demoing. And of course you don't have that anymore, or at least for the time being, has it been harder to really evaluate in terms of brand's performance since you don't have that acquisition channel right now? Yes and no. I would say that, you know, strictly grocery brands that kind of have cold chain or frozen distribution. Yeah, it's, it's I'm not gonna lie, it's, it's been tough to kind of evaluate the, the strength of those businesses because trial is just so much harder to come by. And I think the brands that have done well have are the ones that have been able to pivot to, you know, trial packs where maybe the, the margin is lower, but you're getting your product in front of people direct to consumer, or there's like unique partnerships on social that they're doing with other brands to get, you know, you're that product in front of an, a new kind of consumer. So I would say for like strictly, strictly cold chain frozen food brands, I think there's been a, a bit of lost revenue there. But, you know, I think particularly in, in places like personal care beauty, where, you know, you can easily ship a, a little trial packet out to someone or do interesting cross promotional activity with, with other brands in the space, I would say that's only trial is only picked up there. Got it. That's really interesting. So what would you say is one thing that you would change about venture capital? Huh, yeah, that, that's a that's a good question. And there's certainly various stigmas associated with it. I guess my answer may be a bit of a cop out here or, or a non-answer. But you know, I would say that it, it's very sexy to, to think about venture capital and to say you've raised venture and you're you know, blitz scaling your business. But some of the best businesses and obviously, you know, the, for the first 200 years of the country and, and beyond, have been built without venture capital. And you think of some of the best brands and consumer today and some of the most long lasting, you know, those, those businesses were, were built without venture. And, you know, there's been some articles recently about how you, you can't buy brand. And, and and I think that's that's very true to a point where, you know, you can grow revenues, but it, it, ta- it just takes time to build a brand that consumers want to be a part of and kind of feel like they, they let into their lives. And no amount of money can necessarily like speed that 
that up. So I, I would just say that, you know, I wish that there was more of a spirit to kind of build a business without venture. And, it, you know, it's a bit of a catch 22 because I'm in, I'm in the business of giving people money to build their businesses. But at the same time, you know, I think that people don't necessarily consider it a viable option at the beginning. And, you know, I wish it was talked about with the kind of same sexy cadence that raising venture was talked about. No, that's a very, very good point. And we've had some entrepreneurs here that turned investors that didn't raise any venture capital dollars and had very successful exits and built incredible businesses. So I think that is a great, important thing to note. What's one book that inspired you personally and one book that inspired you professionally? <laughs> yeah, I've, I've heard you ask this question before and I, I, I got a bit worried candidly because I, I don't read a lot of business books, but what I, I do do is kind of read fiction and nonfiction and kind of extrapolate things that I would think would benefit my personal life and my professional life in some way. And so these might be a bit, you know, different than your, your typical response to this question. But on the professional side, there's a, a nonfiction book called Ship of Gold in the Deep Blue Sea by Gary Kinder. Have you ever heard of that book? No, I haven't actually. So it's a fascinating true story of this guy that through reading journals of, of old passengers on this ship discovered that there's a ship that sank in the, like the 1849 off the coast of North Carolina with millions and millions of dollars of gold bullion on it that came from San Francisco during the gold rush and sank in about 9,000 feet of water. And in 19, you know, early 1980s, when this guy discovered where he thought this boat might be, the technology to go and find this ship didn't exist. And the book is about him having to go raise money and literally build the technology that the, the side sweeping radar that would go, you know, he would later go and find this ship and then eventually go and find out a way how to recover the gold on it. But it's a fascinating true story. And there's a lot of little tidbits in there about kind of life and, and navigating, uh, you know, something that you, you people often told you was literally impossible until someone goes and does it. That's amazing. That's me. I will certainly check it out. And you are the first person that mentioned this book. So excited to add it to our book list, but it sounds like a really... <laughs> yeah, it also happens to be like a gripping book, which is always nice because sometimes business books can be a little bit of a slog. I totally agree. And by the way, you're not the first person that on this podcast at all that mentioned that doesn't you know read as much business books. I remember I had Kate McAndrew on and she listed a couple uh, poets that she really enjoyed. She loves reading poetry and she actually can't stand business books. She doesn't get a lot of value from them. So it's always... Yeah, it's always great hearing different producers' response. But this looks great. Ship of Gold in the Deep Blue Sea. We'll certainly, certainly check it out. That's awesome. For sure. And then the other one, the other one I would say would be uh, Shackleton or Endurance by Alfred Lansing. It's the, the tale of Shackleton. Again, one of the most captivating stories that you will ever read. How that team of people managed to be stuck in the Antarctic ice for two years and not lose a single person's life and how they did it and the kind of camaraderie and teamwork that it took. I think there's a lot of both personal and professional lessons in it a book like that. And again, it just has the benefit of being something that you don't want to put down. Totally. Absolutely. I think we also had another guest that mentioned endurance as well. Damn. But I know, I know. So you're like, <laughs> you're like one for two for being original, man. One for two, but it's okay. It's okay. Both books sound really great. I always enjoy adventure books. So they both sound really, really cool. Thanks for mentioning them. What's the best piece of advice you've ever received? Another good question that I kind of had to think about <laughs> for, 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 for a second before I answered to make, make sure I'm not, uh, I'm not looking Dumb, but you know, I think something that stuck with me that I often repeat to myself is, you know, people don't really remember what you say to them, but they do remember how you make them feel. You know, that's something I, I heard a long time ago, and I think can really be applied to a whole slew of situations, whether it's a fight you get in with your partner 
or your communication as a brand to your customer or you as a leader within your organization and how you interact with your employees. You know, if you kind of break it down to something as simple as, you know, it's not necessarily what you say to them, but but how you make them feel in that moment, whether they did something right or did something wrong and what that does to encourage good behavior and discourage bad behavior. You know, if you think about a, a fight you got in with your significant other, like how often do you remember what the fight is about? I, I mostly just remember like how crappy I feel afterwards. And so just, you know, I think that, that's been one that stuck with me. I love that. I mean, also just going off of that of, you know, the actual tone of voice as well when you actually say something, because I always think about it's not what you say, but how you say it as well. Just the actual tonality in your voice or those like little things. Because as you say, it's how you feel. And I feel like you actually, what shapes more how you feel is the way you might say some things rather than what you actually say. So Tyler, what is your most recent investment and why did you make the investment? Yeah, it's a, a great question. So our, our latest investment is actually a, a hair care business based out of London called Curlsmith and they make hair treatment products for textured hair. You know, I think historically you look at the large hair care brands and people with textured hair have been largely ignored even though they make up kind of more than, than half the population by by hair type. And and this is a company that has grown really thoughtfully and capitally efficient since they launched and have just been really thoughtful about new product development and, and kind of listening to their consumers. Obviously, the products are all non-toxic, vegan, you know, animal cruelty-free, a lot of food-based ingredients, actually. And, and you know, most of all, they work and they've built a really loyal following. So we're very excited to, to partner with the founder there, Michal. And uh, yeah, just super stoked on that investment. That's awesome. That's awesome. I'll certainly have to check them out. I, I haven't come across them yet, so um, I'll certainly have to check him out but that sounds really fascinating yeah if, if i remember right you have straight hair so maybe that's uh well to be honest it actually gets pretty curly okay in high right. school they used to call me frogel because i had a pretty big fro so it does get curly quite a bit that's awesome well back back when i had hair i also had a blonde fro so um <laughs> there we go I'm with you there, there. We go. so my final question for you is what's one piece of advice that you have for founders yeah, that's a good one. And there's so many routes you can take. And, you know, I think one thing that I'd kind of personally like to impart is is this notion of survivorship bias. Have you ever heard of this? The example that uh, people tend to give is, you know, they were wondering where to put extra armor on World War II planes. And and so they, they studied all the planes that came back and they wanted to put extra armor where there was bullet holes. And then one guy was like, well, no, don't put the armor where the bullet holes are. Don't put the armor where the bullet holes aren't because those are the planes that never made it back to, for you to look at. And so, you know, if, if this theory of survivorship bias where only concentrating on the things that are working limits your, your worldview. And I think you know, people are, are very quick to want to get people on their board of advisors and people on their team that have successfully built X, Y, and Z. But a lot of times, you know, we as investors love people that have tried something and failed, particularly, you know, like with, within a specific category, because you learn so much from failure as opposed to, to, I mean, you obviously learn a lot from success too, but it's, I think it's two very different lessons. And I don't think we, we don't obviously celebrate failure enough in this, particularly in, in the United States. 
And so, you know, those people that have had the courage to, to take a risk and, and fail at it are, are often just as good as mentors, if not better than, than those that have succeed, succeeded. Yeah, this is a great point. It reminds me of my conversation with Jordan Odinsky, who he spent five years investing in, um, in Israel, and now he invests in the United States. And he said that one of the big differences of the startup ecosystems in the two countries was in Israel, you do a lot more celebrating of the failures and, and really trying to learn, understand the failures there, wherein you US, you really just focus on the successes. You don't really think about the failures. And uh, I think to your point, you can learn a lot more about, you know, some of the unsuccessful attempts at founding a company and what you could actually learn from that. And typically you could learn a lot more from those types of scenarios rather than the big successes. So I think that's a really great point. For sure. Yeah. Well, Tyler, this has been great. Thanks so much for your time. Yeah, I, uh, again, I really appreciate you having me on. I'm um, uh, a listener of, of the podcast. So again, grateful to, to be a part. And there you have it. It was such a blast chatting with Tyler. Tyler, thanks again for coming on the show. You're also welcome to follow me on Twitter at Mike Gelb. For all episodes, please visit theconsumervc.com. Thanks again for listening, folks. Thanks again for listening, folks.